Welcome to Science Fiction Monologues. Have an original work you'd like featured on Sci-Fi Monologues? Email me with streams of consciousness, letters, voice messages, or any other monologue-style story. Send your written or recorded story to tyler at tylersharris.com. This episode is a continuation of a previous episode. If you have not listened to Pop Shiver Part 1, please listen to that, then return to Part 2 in today's episode for the conclusion. Several hours after the seminar ended, I was sitting on my couch, laptop on my knees, when a piece of paper slipped under my door. It read, You have crossed the line. Contain this, or there will be trouble. I dashed out into the street to see who could have left the note. It was unusually crowded, and I couldn't discern who the messenger might be. Either they were exceedingly quick and already out of sight, or they were as good at concealing their identity as I was. Back inside, I locked the door. My first inclination was to run, or hide, or both. But as was usual for me, greed won over. I decided to check my bank accounts. I hadn't since Amy's seminar ended. By this time, I had set up 18 accounts scattered under different names at different locations. Before the seminar, my bank accounts totaled just over $25,000. After the seminar, it had mushroomed to $965,000, just shy of a million dollars. Crossed the line indeed. Greed and wonder overpowered my sense of self-preservation, and for the next six hours I stared at my laptop. As I sat there mesmerized, I watched the totals climb. By the end of the six or so hours, I had accumulated seven and a half million dollars, and still it was growing. Someone at one of the banks was sure to notice this. Maybe not right away, but eventually some bright young algorithm or other would question such rapid growth. By the time the idea to try to neutralize all of my infections occurred to me, it was already too late. The virus was entrenched, and it was displaying incredible virulence, far beyond my original intent. And to my shame and lasting regret, I never considered the possibility of mutation. I had been so focused on watching the money, I had forgotten about the maestro. Fearing there may be more than one of them now, I turned the television news back on. What I saw made me nearly fall off the couch. Within the last several hours, 13 separate disasters, pileups, explosions, shootings, plane crashes, and worse, had occurred within a 30-mile radius of the hotel where Amy's seminar took place. Images whirred by from news footage and blurry cell and security cameras. Disaster experts were called in to try to explain the unbelievable coincidence of it all happening in one small corner of Lower Manhattan and apparently nowhere else. Then, the camera panned over a crowd of shell-shocked commuters and pedestrians at the scene of an overturned school bus. Crying, screaming faces mingled with those of utter disbelief. There were a dozen police officers trying vainly to hold the crowd back, and there, in front of it all, was another maestro. There he stood, another Leonard Bernstein conducting another cursed orchestra, sans baton, in complete control. Pop, shiver, pop, shiver. Then... The camera zoomed out in order to show the size of the wreck and the crowd that surrounded it. There must have been a hundred people or more. And then, there it was. Another maestro. Another Leonard Bernstein. But not just one more, five more. The talking head on the news said something about certain members of the crowd apparently assisting the overwhelmed police. But I knew better. I'd seen enough. 
I was completely panicked. I suddenly felt I was morally extorting the entire world because when you get right down to it, every infection wound up right into one of my bank accounts. And I had not forgotten. I was being watched. How could I possibly contain this? I never once thought of adding in a way of stopping the process. I banged my head repeatedly with my palms. Stupid, stupid, greedy mother... F I stopped suddenly when a piece of paper slid under my door. I ran across the room, tripping over a power cord and spilling my laptop on the floor in the process. Without stopping to read the note, I flung the door wide open, knowing that whoever left the note could not possibly be any more than a couple yards away. But there was no one. Not in front of my building, not in the street. Cumberland Avenue was entirely deserted. As if awakening suddenly, I registered a chorus of sirens coming from the direction of Congress Street. The noise had been going on for some time, but I had tuned it out. I was so captivated by the group of maestros, the Leonards, on the news, that I didn't even hear the chaos just in the next street. After several paranoid glances up and down the street, I popped back inside, locked the door, and read the new note. It's come home to you now. Time to move. This time, I did not panic. I very calmly packed my laptop into my backpack, grabbed my keys, and headed bravely out the back door. Due to the fact that my identity was well known to some obviously very powerful person or persons, possibly the banks, possibly the government, I kept to the shadows and side streets, carefully making my way toward the din coming from Congress Street. When I arrived, there were at least three maestros, conducting their routines, infecting. Blending into the crowd, I watched one in particular with great interest from a few dozen feet away. I recorded it all from the start, both mentally and on my phone. I recognized the routine, but something was different, something I couldn't quite place. At first, I attributed the differences to transmission errors when the virus passed from person to person, like what happens when you play telephone. I would have missed the differences entirely had I been even slightly farther away, or he slightly less articulate. But what I saw shocked me. This maestro had made two very subtle changes, and one even more subtle, but to me, very important addition to the infection routine. My routine. I moved in closer, following him to his next victim, or group of victims, as the case was. Then, watching him from less than ten feet away, I fully grasped what he had done. Those people being infected were being encouraged to actually try to induce the very state of mind that they themselves were experiencing at that moment. The emotional breakdown produced by witnessing the horrific scene in front of them. In this case, it was the large mass of mangled, twisted, bloody, distorted, and unrecognizable bodies, and parts of bodies that started at the corner of Congress and Center Streets, and ended a block and a half up, where the massive Metro bus had finally, mercifully, come to a stop. The few that had survived the incident were still screaming, crying. One was still holding the handles, and only the handles, of a baby carriage, screaming and screaming so long and so loud her voice had become nothing more than a shredded whisper and she crumpled to her knees. I hope you were paying attention when I was telling you what the most recent maestro did to that crowd. Because it's very important. These people... These wretched, traumatized people were being instructed to actually create similar acts of violence and terror themselves. In short, they were being programmed to become killers, so that people like themselves might be more easily programmed to become killers. So that... 
I can't finish that sentence. Then, I made a connection. The initial scenes of mass chaos I saw on the news was localized to the area directly surrounding Amy's seminar. The additional disaster instructions must have been added by someone at the seminar, possibly even Amy herself. Never trust a salesman, especially one who works on commission. I suspected that not only had they added the new instructions, but had also diverted some of the money that was being donated, my money, into their own bank accounts. The clever little... Here was a group of people who were trained to hone in on our weaknesses, our basest impulses and drives, and use them to break down our natural barriers and force us, with smiling faces, to spend, 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 until we bled green. One or more people at the seminar must have been infected, realized it. I'm not the only talented one out there. Then reasoned that the best way to spread an infection of any kind was to first lower the defenses of the victim. And then they had modified my routine. And whoever had done it was damned good at their job, and not a little bit psychopathic. The problem was that I couldn't just walk up to a maestro and ask him where he learned his tricks. For one thing, they were likely completely unaware they were doing anything at all. For another, we were in southern Maine, and the routine's modifications were created in New York, so he was likely a copy of a copy. There was just no way to trace it. Suddenly, there was a massive explosion in front of the library, a block away. A car jumped 15 feet in the air as it exploded, sending a group of Canadian tourists flying in all directions, radiating out like a bloody firework. Then, a second explosion, slightly muffled, but many times more powerful, came from within the library itself shattering the façade and those of the buildings on either side of it. A rain of stone, metal, charred body parts, paper and books came down on the entire four-block area. I hid as best I could in a recessed concrete doorway, but was struck on my right knee by a massive hardcover book. I chuckled mirthlessly as I noticed that it was The Stand by Stephen King. I and the rest of those that remained alive after the debris stopped falling fled up Congress, away from the library, running and pushing and screaming and tripping over pieces of bodies and books. Looking to my left, I saw the maestro I had been watching moments before running beside me. He was old and grossly overweight, but setting a good pace nonetheless. I grabbed him by the arm as he stumbled. Come with me, I said, offering no explanation as I continued to run, pulling him by the arm. What the hell just happened? He managed between labored breaths. Don't worry, I said. I'll explain on the way. The way to where, he asked. I was pulling him harder now. He kept looking back over his shoulder, and it was slowing us down. I pulled him into the main College of Art building, since it was very close to where we were, and I knew it had a back entrance. I stopped when we were safely out and on the free street side. This maestro was still in a daze, but after a moment he regained his composure. Do you know what just happened, I asked. Do you remember what you were actually doing back there in front of that crowd? Before the explosions, I mean? Well, before the explosions, I was... I was on the sidewalk trying to... To... Trying to what? I insisted. I was trying to help everyone stay calm. Did you see what that bus did? Oh, my God, those poor people, those poor... Listen, do you remember exactly what you were doing when you were helping those people? No answer. Think, I yelled. Nothing. I grabbed him by the shoulders and shook him so hard I unintentionally knocked his head against the cement wall of the art building. I took a deep breath, then tried to work out my next move. Even if he consciously knew what he was doing to those people, which was doubtful, 
Making him stop would do nothing for the thousands already infected and would not stop the dozens, maybe hundreds of maestros that had been unleashed on the world. I needed a retrovirus, and fast. Improvisation is not my strong suit. It had taken me almost three months of relentless study and experimentation, on company time and using company personnel, to come up with my original routine, which, in case you're wondering as I was, by the time I exited the art building with my own personal maestro, had earned me nearly $34 million. But time was running out. I could feel it. The situation had indeed come home. I backed away from my maestro, took a breath, and extended my hand to introduce myself. Hello, I said, and told him my name. And you are Leonard, Leonard Berntrauer. I forgot what I was supposed to do with my hand. His name was actually Leonard. The coincidence seriously spooked me. Nonetheless, I grabbed his hand to shake it. Before I'd finished saying, it's nice to meet you, I snatched his right hand away from mine with the middle and index finger of my left, a classic pattern interruption used to initiate hypnosis. What I hadn't expected, hadn't even entertained the slightest notion of, was what he did next. Within a fraction of a second of my interrupt, he grabbed my right hand with his left and pulled it to one side, apparently trying to pattern interrupt to hypnotize me. We stopped and stared at each other, puzzled and amused for several seconds, then burst out laughing. As it turned out, Leonard Berntrauer knew almost as much about hypnosis and NLP as I did, only he seemed to be much more susceptible to suggestion. He recognized at once what we were both trying to do. His intention, so he said, was to get rid of me, thinking of me as merely some random person who'd just dragged him a block and a half up the street in an effort to appear heroic. He had no idea why I was trying to hypnotize him. I told him I was just trying to calm him down. He didn't believe me. In our very brief, percussive verbal exchange on the way to our current location, I'd been a little too curious about some very specific things, and he'd caught on. I admitted to it and explained as quickly as possible that he had been programmed to do some very nasty things in the name of spreading what I called some kind of mind virus. There was no point in showing him I was not only holding the murder weapon, but had actually built it. Fortunately, I had a phone video that saved me a lengthy explanation. Leo sat down on the back steps of the art building and stared at the pavement. What have I done? he said, his voice almost a whisper. What has been done to you? I said, sitting beside him, putting my arm around his considerable shoulders. Is that you have been taken advantage of mentally. You're being controlled. I couldn't look at him when I said it. But by who? And when did this happen? I don't fall for that stuff. I make other people fall for it. He looked at his hands, turning them over like they had been rendered useless. I don't know, Leo, I lied, but it's got to stop. But you, just now, you tried to hypnotize me. I don't have time to explain, but like I said, there's something huge going on here. This is not an isolated incident. This madness has spread at least as far as New York, and they are not accidents. You saw the video. You saw what you were programming those people to do. I waited for the moment when he realized he might have actually been the reason the bus driver mowed down those twenty-odd people. He sat for a moment, working it out. His hands and mouth moved in vaguely recognizable fragments of the routine as he pieced things together. Yes, he said with consternation. Then, as if reciting instructions... To cause accidents, disasters, violence, whatever needs to be done. Anger coming into his voice. 
Then infect as many people as possible in the aftermath and tell them to give money to the poor of Portland. Those last words had verbal quotation marks. He screwed his face up, trying to figure something out. But the poor? All this death? To help the poor? It doesn't make sense. I should not need to remind you, dear reader, that the poor of Portland is the name of the non-profit I invented. It was where all these people were sending their money. The poor was simply me, until marketing got in on the act at least. Now the poor was me minus marketing's percentage. Look, Leo, I think I know what's happening, I said. I've been studying this phenomenon, and there seems to be some kind of connection between the infections and the poor. Infections? Do you mean the programming of these people? Of us? Yes. You're not the only one affected, not by a long way. For the last several weeks, thousands of people have been programmed infected with certain commands and variations of them. And up until yesterday, it had been relatively innocuous. Give money to the poor and spread the word. But very recently, someone figured out a way to ramp up the rate of infection by orders of magnitude, by, by lowering people's defenses. Yes, but in this case, it's not the body's defenses, but the mind's. He asked, But why would anyone use violence and death in this way? I can see wanting to help the poor, and whoever came up with the idea of raising money like that is a genius. Devious, sure, but no less a genius. But whoever took that hideous next step, whoever added this terrible violence, he trailed off. They went too far, I continued his thought, not entirely owning what I had said. I helped him to his feet. Come on. We need to try to stop this. How can we possibly, he asked, looking around at the growing stream of people coming from the next block. Their faces were painted with fear and grief. His gaze fixed on something. What in blue blazes is going on over there? About half a block behind us, a line had formed at the Bangor Savings Bank, flowing out in three directions, two from the main doors and one from the ATM booth. The people in line had that same fearful look, but somewhat askew, turning it into an expression that said that they were afraid they might miss out on something like being the first to get their hands on the newest iPhone. They were pushing forward, urging the line on. Leo and I ran over. What's going on? I asked the first person I came to, a frumpy, middle-aged lady in a brown suit. She was flicking her ATM card with her finger, making a series of pop-pop-pop noises over and over. We're giving to the poor, of course, she said, snapping her attention back to the course of the line. Even with her body side to and crunched in line as it was, I could see the blood stain down her left sleeve and most of the front of her suit. Leo apparently noticed as well. I turned to him. Okay, this is just plain nuts. We need to move now. He agreed. You've heard the phrase, too little, too late? I didn't fully realize it at the time, but that is precisely what any action Leo and I took at that point would prove to be. We ran back to the art building's back entrance intending to go back up to Congress, where two of northern New England's largest TV news stations were headquartered, to try to contain this disaster of disasters. The stations were very likely covering the story already, up close, in-depth, put in perspective, and now back to you, Bob, at that very moment. I never found out. The art building had been locked, either by chance, bad timing, or because of the chaos permeating the area. Then... Just as I was turning away from the door, I saw a note taped to it. It was meant for me, just like the others. Your maestro is the key. Another is moving. Go, now or never. I wasn't a hundred percent sure how Leo would be the key to fixing this mess. But I had an idea. 
I wasn't even sure the mysterious notes were actually being helpful. I had a nagging doubt about them, and the maestros in general. But at that moment, I pushed it aside. What hideous hindsight. Then it struck me. All along, Leo looked so familiar to me, but I couldn't place him. Then, like a smack on the head, pop, shiver, I knew who he was. He was the Leonard Berntrauer, host of one of the nation's highest-rated morning shows. Evidently, I watched just enough television for him to look familiar, but not enough to actually recognize him when it might have made a difference. Leo, I said, grabbing his arm, whirring him around. You're Leo Berntrauer, of course. He gave me a guilty-as-charged look as only a celebrity can. We found a quiet spot on the steps of the Civic Center and spent the next frantic half-hour planning the retrovirus, the one that would be ruthlessly infectious, not just on television and on the net, but on the radio as well. It also needed to neutralize any previous infections anyone had in their system. Leo, I said, grabbing his arm, whirring him around. You're Leo Berntrauer, of course. He gave me a guilty-as-charged look as only a celebrity can. We found a quiet spot on the steps of the Civic Center and spent the next frantic half-hour planning the retrovirus, the one that would be ruthlessly infectious, not just on television and on the net, but on the radio as well. It also needed to neutralize any previous infections anyone had in their system. We were interrupted several times by explosions, crashes, and mayhem of varying degrees, but managed to come up with something we thought would work. We tried it on a few passers-by with reasonable success given our working conditions. We even managed to snag another maestro, whom I recognized from my phone video, and got it working on her. So far, so good. Sweaty, physically and mentally exhausted, I helped Leo up and said, Okay, Leo, get to the television station as fast as you can. I started pulling the poor man by the arm again. Tell them to send feeds out to every affiliate and website they can. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, the lot. I'll keep distributing the retro to whoever I run into. But yours is the big job. Yours is the one that goes national, got it? I'm with you, he said. His face was haggard, but a fire burned in his eyes and his voice filled with excitement. He set off toward NBC6 as fast as his legs and lungs and gut would allow. Wish me luck, he called back over his shoulder as he disappeared around the corner. I never saw or heard from him again. He made it to the station, all right. That much I found out, but not with our retrovirus. Through all our careful, detailed planning, I didn't think to tell him not to stop or talk to anyone on his way to the station. It didn't occur to him either, apparently. It never occurred to us that a stronger, more vicious strain of my modified virus had begun to spread, even as we were planning ours. This new, nasty, deadly virus, born out of a routine I had created as a lark, just to have some fun and make some extra cash was being broadcast from ABC 8 by a very clever, very articulate maestro named Abby Sinclair. From the gossip going around the fallout shelter under City Hall, where I am now, I surmise the virus, the violence, the chaos, the death, is now worldwide. You can thank the viral internet for that. I can feel the entire planet pop and shiver, pop and shiver, right over my head. I never did find out who was leaving me all those notes either. I did get one more just a few minutes ago. Someone must have laid it on me while I was dozing. It read, We were willing to share Earth with you. No need now. At least you tried. The End For more information about this story and the music of Richard DaCosta, visit richarddacosta.com. 
written and performed by Richard DaCosta. Science fiction monologues will return next month with one-part episodes.